This episode of the podcast is brought to you by MakeMeConditional.com. You sign lots of releases in order to get paid, and best practices suggest that you make every release conditioned on actually receiving that payment. How do you do that? By making the release conditional. Now, some releases are conditional when they're given to you, but in my experience, most are not. So you can make them conditional by adding conditional language. You can do that by handwriting it in every single time, or you can go to makemeconditional.com and we will provide for you for free a stamp that you can use that will stamp any release with conditional language so that you can simplify the process. So if you want your absolutely free Make Me Conditional stamp, just go to makemeconditional.com, fill in the information, and in a few days, you'll have your free stamp. Well, all right. Let's get into our conversation with Alex Barthet and learn how we can get paid faster. Alex, great to see you again. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Dave. How about you? Uh, fantastic. Thanks. Well, got a couple of things going on. One, where you have a mutual client that we're uh, working on some of his legal work, but I always love what listening to your show. You've got the podcast, the lean zone, great information. I love how it's short and sweet to the point, but I uh, still catch up on that. I've got some questions for you, particularly what we're doing with, um, with our friend, but also some other problems that I see going on with some of the other contractors that I'm working with. So why don't we start off? Let's hear a little about you, what you're doing. Tell me about the podcast briefly, too. Sure. Uh, again, my name is Alex Barthet. I am based here in South Florida, Miami specifically, board certified in construction law by the Florida Bar and a mechanical engineer by education. Uh, I've been doing this for almost 25 years. I have a firm that uh, my father started about 30 years ago, and we have 12 lawyers that work here, and, and all we do is construction. We don't do anything else. I can't help with a slip and fall or your divorce. Um <laughs> or real estate transaction. We just help those folks that are in the construction industry. And uh, and as part of that help, we have lots of educational outreach. One of the things we started, I want to say it's maybe eight years ago now, um, is the podcast, The Lean Zone. Uh, so that's how we met, Dave. You know, mm -hmm. I listened right. to your podcast, you listened to mine, and we said, yep. hey, we should talk to each <laughs> other. So yeah, we've, we focus on legal issues, Primarily Florida centric, but they apply in other parts of the country as well. Um, liens, bonds, collections, contract issues. Um, and we put it out once a week. They're generally pretty short, 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes. Hmm. So what you're saying is you've got enough contractors that have problems to keep you <laughs> full-time business. Oh, huh? <laughs> yes. Yes. We are very, very busy. South Florida is a hopping market. Um, yeah, yeah. Lots of lots of work in South Florida. Well, tell me some of the things that you're running into, specifically for uh, roofing contractors or generals. But what's going on? Um, I know that it's it's a little different down there. I mean, things are booming. You've got all this crazy weather and so forth. What's uh, some of the new stuff going on, or some of the problems that you're seeing since the last time we spoke? So. I would tell you that the biggest thing that probably started tail end of last year, definitely in earnest this year, material price escalation. Mm -hmm. That is, I probably field a few calls a week, even now, on material price escalation. It's a, it's a significant issue for every trade, roofers in particular. Uh, and it's a two-part problem. One is the cost associated with the materials, and two is the delay associated with getting the material that's affecting the job. And that's assuming you can even get the material. Um, there are some material that's just not currently available, which is creates a, a significant problem. Um, you know, we have roofing clients that are, you know, 10 months out on tapered insulation board. I mean, how do you run a job if you can't get product for 10 months? Um, that complicates things a lot. Uh, yeah. Well, we've got, you know, our, our mutual client 
he's got the insulation up there for a, a commercial job. And unfortunately he gets the insulation up there before he's got the plates and screws. So the, he just finally got them. I think he's been waiting six or seven months to get the goddamn screws. And so <laughs> materials just sitting up there. We've got, well, there's a whole additional set of problems with that, but these price increases, let's just look at that. What do you see? I mean, do you know, I always talk to my contractors, make sure that you've got a price escalation clause in your contract. But do you see a lot of these contractors that, you know, are totally unprotected against that? And what can they do? So we so we see that it falls into two major buckets. Um, and the first bucket I'm going to talk about, we're seeing less and less of as time passes. Um, so the first bucket are people that signed a contract with a no escalation provision in it, which if we rewind a year ago was standard practice, right? Mm -hmm. A year ago plus you would sign a contract and it would not necessarily have an escalation provision unless of course it was your contract you were giving to someone and they were signing your form. But if you're signing an owner's contract because they're a sophisticated owner and they give you a contract or you're signing a GC contract that they're giving to you, so a subcontract, it has clearly a no escalation provision in it. So the big problem we have is that first bucket of people. They are they signed a contract last year, early this year, and they've committed to a price for the duration of a project, and those prices are going through the roof. The second bucket is easier to deal with, which is people that are negotiating and signing contracts today. Everyone knows, I'm not doing your work if I can't get a price escalation provision in it. So um, the the problem we're seeing there is that we're having some clients being presented with a provision that's titled price escalation. But when you read it, there are so many hoops you have to jump through, it might as well not even be there. So the devil is in the details um, because I have seen, uh, I, I was reviewing a contract this morning and they've proposed, the other side has proposed a price escalation provision. And my client said, well, can I sign this? I said, sure you can, but you'll never get a nickel from it because of all the things you have to do to verify that you're entitled to that uh, price escalation, which would be next to impossible to achieve. So they're telling you they're giving it to you, but they're not really giving you anything. Um, so those that's what we're, we're dealing with. Um, the first bucket is very complicated because if you've signed a contract and you're not entitled to a price escalation, how do you get the other side to pay you? And we've come up with some creative strategies uh, to do that. Um, most of it is negotiating and trying to convince the other side that they are the beneficiaries of this rising market. And as a result, we shouldn't have to pay the costs associated with that, um, with the additional benefit they're getting. So for example, if it's a apartment complex, you know, I'm paying more for your roofing materials. You want me to eat that. But at the same time, when this building opens, you're going to make more because rents have gone up five, 10, 20%. You know, you should share some of that with me. I'm not asking you to pay for all of it, but here's my documentation showing that, you know, it went up 15% and I'm only asking you for 10% of it. So you're saying it's a complicated issue. And well, I always recommend everybody has an attorney look at their contract, not only their contract that they're using, but also really any contract that they they they, they get. Maybe it's a major project or, or something like that. But I always say you should have an attorney review this. And it's one thing to mark it up. They say, well, they're never going to sign. Well, that's fine. But at least you understand what your exposure is. And you can try to negotiate with them to get some of these terms taken out. Let's say we've got a price escalation clause. And I've seen a lot of these that just say, hey, if the price goes up, we're entitled to extra compensation. How the hell do you figure that out as far as from a monetary standpoint? There's no uh, specific um, clarity to it. It just says, hey, we're going to get more money. How does that work? Right. So let me address one of the first things you mentioned. Uh, and demystify this, right? So everybody tells you that they will not make any changes to their contract. 
Sometimes it's even written on the contract. Do not, uh, you know, change this contract. It will not be accepted, right? I'm here to tell you, having done this for almost 25 years, that every one of those contractors that tells you that, I have a client where we have negotiated substantial changes to their contract. So they will always make changes to your contract, guaranteed 100%. Yeah. How many not- changes they make? You know, maybe it's not a lot. Maybe mm-hmm. it's more. You know, are you the low price? Do they have alternatives? Are they buying the job out late? Do you have a relationship? All of that affects what you can negotiate, but they will always negotiate something. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, and some of these, so many of these contractors, they've just been using this standard form that they've had for 20 years and just never made any changes. So I have found that when you bring these things up and just say, hey, you know, what does this have to do with us? Uh, this is unfair, but you're so right that almost always we've been able to negotiate most of the things that are unreasonable out of those. And if you don't, you know, <laughs> you're going to have a real problem, but at least, you know, and you can make those decisions, whether you're going to sign it or you're not, here's my exposure. This is my risk, but you know, what's going on. And I agree with you. They will generally change those. 95% of, uh, contracts are never amended. So, you know, they put up a strong front just mm-hmm. to get the people get people to think subcontractors to think that they won't make any changes um, so that they, you don't even ask. Um, but if you're persistent, they will usually uh, concede. And what I, what I tell clients is this, this is a long game. This is not a short game. And the long game is you're going to do work with these contractors typically over and over. So take an opportunity today Make some changes. Maybe you present 20 changes and you get five of them, right? Not great odds, but you've made five changes Mm -hmm. that didn't exist before. The next contract that comes up with this contractor or owner, you're going to take the old version where you got five changes. Now you're going to take another run at it. You're going to try to make more changes. Then the next contract that comes up, you're going to take the last version you did, make a few more. Like you just want to continue to iterate and get a little better each time, right? The goal is nothing bad happens, so you don't have any issue. No one ever looks at the contract, great. But you know, your seventh contract in, you've now made 30 changes to the contract, and wow, when something comes up, you've actually got some good language in the agreement because you've worked at it for a long period of time. And you get a contractor who says, hey, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, I've never had a problem, but it only takes one time you know, that one contract. And I got to think the majority of your clients are probably coming to you and say, I got this problem. And then when you ask, okay, well, let's look at the contract. There either is no contract or it's some terrible contract. And you're, you're, you're trying to figure out what to do after the event has already occurred. And I got to think your hands are a bit tied at that point. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And much more often than not, it's that our client has signed a very onerous contract without having someone review it or amend it. And when we review a contract and we propose changes, our goal is never to make it, well, our goal would ideally be to make it fair, but we're never going to make it fair. All we want to do is sprinkle in ambiguity in certain areas so that if an issue were to arise in the future, we have something to argue about. We're never going to take out the pay when paid provision. Here in Florida, pay when paid is valid and enforceable if it's really? yeah, uh, yeah. alleged correctly. Mm-hmm. So if you have it in your contract, no contractor is ever going to take it out. Um, but, for example, we want to try to include the, the, the right to stop work. Many contracts say you don't have the right to stop work. Uh, so... We want to include that as a specific right. Um, it doesn't avoid the pay when paid, but at least it gives you the ability to stop work if you're not getting right. paid. Um, those are some of the things that we want to try to do. Um, you know, we have a whole list of other ones. You know, one of the things I can mention, um, you know, we just released a, a tool. We're big on tools. Um, if you go to the Lean Zone website, you'll see we have lots of different tools to, to solve different problems. We have a something we call the Calculean 
which is a lean calculator, um, helps you calculate the 45 and 90 days. Um, uh, we also have something we just released called the Contract Detective. So you could go to contractdetective.com and you can upload your contract completely free. And we've programmed a uh, AI computer engine to find 10 of what we think are the most dangerous contract provisions in a construction contract. And it finds them in the contract and it points them out to you. It doesn't make any changes. We don't, we're not altering the contract, but you know, does this contract have a waiver of liquidated, uh, sorry, a waiver of consequential damage provision? Mm -hmm. Well, we will find that for you if it's in the contract. So it's a way to try to break through this, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 page document of legalese more easily. And then each of those areas that we identify in the contract, we link to a video where we explain what that contract provision is, how it works, and we give you sample provisions on various sides, whether you're an owner, a contractor, a subcontractor, so you can see what other provisions look like. Um, so yeah, we just released that about a month ago. So anyone can go, it's completely free. You just put in your email address, uh, upload a contract of up to 100 pages, and you'll get your results in about five minutes. Contractdetective.com. How cool is that? I mean, now that is the first time I've ever heard this. And what a great service, a great tool. And so run that by me again. So you're, you're, give me your website. And then it sounds like you use a special, a separate website for, to use this tool. Right. So everything eventually points to the leanzone.com. That's where everything, that's the hub of all of the information we give out. But mm -hmm. the, the tool itself is called Contract Detective. So if you go to contractdetective.com, it will take you right to the right page. Um, it'll explain how it works. You click scan your contract, put in your email address, upload the contract. Um, and then within, you know, a minute or two, you'll have an email and that email will identify different contract provisions like pay when paid, the right to stop work, consequential damages, liquidated damages, uh, indemnity defense and hold harmless, hidden conditions, uh, price escalation. All of those issues will get wow. identified. Where are they in this contract? If they exist, if we found it, um, you know, it's not perfect, right? If you want perfect, you got to hire a lawyer to do it. But, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you want to at least understand your contract better, this is a great way to do it. Um, and then again, it links to videos. Each of them are less than five minutes long explaining each of those provisions. Wow. That is fantastic. I love it. I got to check that out because, uh, I got a couple of guys right now. I'll send them over to that site. I love it. Yeah, we're well, close. We're close to releasing version two, which will be a little easier, a little better accuracy. Yeah. So, you know, we're always trying to improve it, even though the first one was only a month ago. You know, we've gotten some strong demand uh, with it so that we want to keep improving it, make it more useful to the construction community. I'll bet. Wow. I love that. Okay. Let's, um, the one thing I wanted to talk to you about and why we originally got in touch was, uh, the client that I have that I'm working with my coaching um, program and what this is, and I'd like to take each of these uh, separately, but my client is a subcontractor to a general working for the building owner. And, you know, I always talk about, I don't work for general contractors, always be the prime contractor for all kinds of various reasons that I talk about. But not only is he a subcontractor, but he's got a subcontractor that's doing the work. So this not only gets a little complicated, but what I was concerned about, I'm just hearing about this. Okay. Now this is a huge job for this particular contractor. He's never done a job this big. And I said, you, you've got to get this checked out by Alex because just, you know, for a job of this size, well, a job for any size, this is complicated. I want to make sure that you're covered before we get into um, all the other problems that are going to go wrong with this job. So, so let's start off with just, um, you know, we don't, we don't have to use his name or anything, but kind of a situation or what you see all the time is just the first thing is we're working for a general contractor. 
And besides the contract provisions, um, just, I don't know, what do you see as some issues, specific issues for roofing contractors that we need to be aware of when we're working as a sub? Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Um, If you are a, if you have direct contractual privity with the owner, you know, you have some more control. Um, you take out the middleman. There are sometimes advantages that being a sub uh, may get you paid a little faster on occasion. So, for example, you know, sometimes owners will react quickly to a lien by a sub of a GC, and that may force payment directly from the owner to the to the lienor. Um, it could hold up financing. Now, that doesn't mean that if you were direct in direct contract with the owner, you couldn't do the same thing. But um, but yes, I, I tend to agree with you. If given the opportunity, you should try to have a direct contract with the owner rather than being a sub. But mm-hmm. if you're going to be a sub, then the first thing that I would recommend to most people is do you have at your fingertips a form of agreement that you can hand out to people. What folks don't seem to understand is that if you, whoever presents the contract first, typically is going to get the better deal in the end. So if I hand you my contract, Dave, and that's what we negotiate off of, the end result is going to, no matter how you change it, the end result is likely going to be better for me than if you hand me your form of agreement and we make changes to that. So the first thing I would tell folks is be prepared for the fact that when you are presented with an opportunity to contract with an owner and surprisingly even a GC, that you have your own form of agreement ready to go so that you're not caught flat-footed when presented. So what does that mean? That means either you do it yourself Um, or you hire a lawyer to prepare a contract document that's good for you and still reasonably fair for the other side versus having to get a document that's probably going to be very unfair for you if presented by the other side. So that's number one. Now, I get a lot of people that say, but I'm always a sub. I'm never given an opportunity to sign my contract. The GC always gives me theirs. And that's probably true more often than not. But there's going to be a handful of times where you're dealing with maybe a newer GC or a less sophisticated GC, and that GC doesn't necessarily have a form ready to go because they haven't heeded this advice and they didn't get it ready um, to go. So so to me, that's step number one. And then um, our uh, fellow client, Um, was subbing out the work himself as well, right? So then that's the next thing. Do you have a subcontract that you're ready to give to somebody when you're ready to hire them? Again, contract terms that are good for you um, and still fair for the other side. So being ready, I would tell you, probably represents a good 60% of solving the problem. Okay, that's great. Yeah, that's... uh... Something I didn't really think of. So that's 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 a great tip. Let's talk about how we're going to get paid as the subcontractor, because this is a oh he's a general and oh it's, you know I do a lot of work for him. You know he's never been a problem before. I don't want to get him pissed off and so forth. But besides all of that, you know what are we? What should we be doing? And obviously. Don't fall into that trap where, um, oh yeah, he's a good guy. He'll be good for it. So to me, I, I see two things, right? So number one, um, if you pin me against the wall, Dave, and you said, Alex, you need to pick one contract provision that you're going to change. They've handed me a 60-page contract. I can only change one thing. What should I change? The answer for me, again, after doing this for as long as I have, is very easy you want the right to stop work. That is, of all of the things you can change, in my opinion, probably the most significant issue that will come up that, and you want to have that right unequivocally in the contract. Most contracts that are given to you say that if there's a dispute, you have to keep working no matter what. Right, right. 
So you want to have an unequivocal right to stop work. So that would be part one. Add that type of provision to your contract. Maybe it's you get to stop work seven days after you're not paid, 20 days, mm-hmm. 30 days, 50 days, just not not never, right? That's that's what we want to avoid. We want to avoid a situation where you are not getting paid, your change orders are not getting approved, you're still paying your labor, you're still buying materials, you're having to pay a lawyer to help get you paid, and you got money going out the door and no money coming in the door. That is a recipe for disaster. Right. Now, now on that point, you just can't stop work if you're not getting paid. If you don't have a provision in your contract, that is not a good idea. The guy's not paying you. You got a problem. You just can't stop work without having problems. Is that right? For the most part, that's true. There are certain legal scenarios where you could stop work without an express provision that gives you the right to stop work. Let me give you an example. I'm a roofer. I come to your house. We have nothing in writing, right? Maybe just a simple proposal that says, I'm going to redo your roof for $15,000, right? And it has a series of milestone payments, uh, but no terms and conditions, just really basic, whatever we wrote in QuickBooks that it spit out. In that situation, if you haven't paid me, I probably have the legal right to stop work, right? Because, you know, there's no obligation that I have to keep working. The agreement's not very clear that that it prevents me from stop uh, stopping work. But more often than not, again, I will tell you that it's never that clear and we typically see more sophisticated owners and contractors give you contracts that say you cannot stop work if you're not getting paid. Right. So that's think about it. You're going to be in breach of the agreement, not not because you're not doing your work uh, or that you're doing something wrong, but because you decided to stop working. Right. So you got to be very careful about that. The second part you said is, OK, how do we get paid? You absolutely positively need to enforce and follow whatever the lien laws are in your state to secure your right to be paid. Here in Florida, as a subcontractor, you need to serve what's called a notice to owner no later than 45 days from your first work on the project. So if I'm a sub, I have a contract with you, Dave, the general contractor, within 45, no later than 45 days from my first work, I have to serve this document. It's a very formal document called a notice to owner. Um, it's not just a document that I write notice to owner on top. It's, it's mm-hmm. like a real document in the, right. in the legal statutes. I got to send that to the owner no later than 45 days from first, my first work. Mm-hmm. If they get it on day 46, I no longer have lien rights, even if my lien is not going to show up for another 60, 90, 180 mm-hmm. days. So it's a prerequisite to enforcing your lien. Every state's a little different. Right. So you're out of luck completely if you don't file, um, I don't know, I've known it as just a pre-lien, where you're notifying. I mean, the idea is that this owner does not know you're even working on his building. So you have to notify him that, hey, we're out here and we have certain rights. Is that right? Correct. So we run into people that sometimes say, well, I never sent a notice because I was getting paid for the first 90 days. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I have to be the bearer of bad news and say, that's great. But the law, at least in Florida, every state is different. But at least in Florida, even if you were getting paid, you have to serve that notice no later than 45 days from your first work. Now, there's lots of services that are out there that can help you. We typically recommend a service by the name of Sunray Construction Solutions. You can go to their website um, and they have a 50 state summary. So you can go to find your state and it'll summarize each of the requirements for notice to owner, pre-lean, lean deadlines, um, state by state. So it'll answer your questions and they do all the notices. Our most successful clients do not do the notices themselves. They use a service. Right. Exactly. Because um, there's there's other dates that we have to follow also. Correct. And it gets complicated, particularly if you're doing a lot of this. This is one of the things that I've seen that just gets pushed off. Oh, whoops, we missed this. Oh, no big deal until there becomes a problem. Yeah. And and then at, unfortunately, at that point, it's it's 
too late. Um, you know, going back to one of the comments you made, Dave, which is, well, you know, this contractor is a good guy. He said, you know, please don't send a notice to owner or pre-lean. Look, I, I'm here to tell you that everything's great until it's not. Right. So you should just have a process in your office that every job over a certain threshold that you determine, mm. is it $500? Is it $2,500? Is it 15000 Whatever you decide. But if a job meets that threshold, we're going to file the whatever obligations we have to preserve our lien rights. We're going to follow that process because it this contract met that threshold. Right. right. It's kind of a plug and play solution. So you're not mm -hmm. guessing, oh, do we need it here? Do we not need it here? Well, I know the owner here, so we don't need to do it. Exactly. Talk about most of our listeners they really haven't been in business for much more than 10 years. Okay. Now you and I, we've seen some downturns <laughs> in the economy and whether or not we're coming into what we are, things are changing now. That good old developer that you knew for so long and that general, we've both seen where your best client all of a sudden, you know, Hey, they ain't your best client anymore. I mean, they, a lot of people run into financial trouble uh, during uh, this type, I, I know that a lot of guys are really heavily leveraged, which doesn't help help matters at all. But this is when things happen. It just takes that one time, and you can be out of business. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't take much to uh, have a problem with you know a client of yours. That is significant for sure. But even if it's insignificant, you know, even if you're doing a couple of million dollars of revenue a year and you're owed a hundred grand, I mean, that's a lot of money. Think about it. that's a hundred mm -hmm. grand just right off the top. That's after you paid your expenses, that's money should have come in. You're going to have to absorb that. Um, and what I'm here to, what I, what I have learned over the years is that no one that you should be doing business with will be upset because you are enforcing your legal rights. Right. And if they are, by the way, you probably should question whether you should be doing business with them or not. Exactly. I, uh, I, I agree. So back to our subcontractor. Now we're subbing out our work, the roofing work. What are a couple of key provisions that we want to make sure that we have? Because very few of the contractors that I know have any kind of subcontract uh, or, or contract with their subcontractors, whether it's a blanket um, contract or whether it's specifically for a job. What are some provisions they need to have? What are some of the problems that you see when we get into this? Because, uh, you know, they're just, uh, you know, they've done a lot of work for us. What could go wrong? So we typically recommend clients um, have two forms of subcontracts at the ready. They're effectively the same legal document, um, the boilerplate, um, but they're used in slightly different ways, right? So one is what we would call, and most people reference as a master subcontract agreement. So as you said, a blanket agreement. We find that to be tremendously useful. You get someone to sign an agreement now with all of the legal terms and conditions, whether that's three, five, seven, ten pages long, and then th those legal terms and conditions get put in a in a drawer. No one's ever going to look at them again. More often than not, they're probably not going to make any changes to it. And then, to the extent that you have a job for them, because it's a sub that you're using on a pretty regular basis, you're going to issue them a work order, and that work order is going to reference the terms and conditions in the master subcontract Love agreement. Um, this is a great way to have all of those terms and conditions in your agreement. And we'll talk about what some of those are and not burden someone with having to have them sign a five, six, 10 page agreement. Every time you give them a contract, Right. you just give them a work order, you sign it, they sign it. And it has the relevant provisions with respect to the job, job, uh, uh, owner, address, price, schedule, um, scope. Um, and then it just references the terms and conditions. So you don't have to show them those legal points over and over again. Now, at the right. same time, 
you're going to have other folks that you use as one-offs. So you have to have a one-off agreement, right? Because maybe there's a guy that you only use once every two or three years, um, or there's a unique scope that you need that you're not really, he's not, he's not going to sign a master service agreement because you're probably never going to use him again. So we also recommend that you have a standalone agreement. And we try to keep those terms and conditions pretty short down to effectively a page or two because we don't want to overwhelm someone. We just want to get enough protection so that if something goes wrong, we can point to those provisions. Um, and then your question at heart is, well, what are those provisions? What should they be? Um, so a couple of simple things. Uh, you want to make sure that they are bound to you just like you are bound to whoever you've contracted with so that you have a flow through provision mm -hmm. in the contract document. You want to make sure that they have the necessary insurance requirements. Big one. And, yes. And mm -hmm. additional insured requirements. Most Tell us about that real quick, if you would. Yeah. Most, most policies of insurance will automatically provide for additional insured coverage if there is a contract that requires additional insured coverage. So if, let's take an example, Dave, you and I have a contract. I'm, I'm, a, I'm the uh, roofing subcontractor and I'm subbing down to you, right? Mm -hmm. So you're gonna provide services through me to this project. And we don't have a contract that requires that you name me as an additional insured. Now you have insurance, but our contract doesn't say that you have to name me as an additional insured. And I say nothing. And you hand me a certificate of insurance, which is great. It just means the, the COI is just a document that says you have insurance. It doesn't confer any rights upon me. How do I know that? Well, you could actually read the certificate of insurance and on the document itself, it says this document confers no rights, right? So mm -hmm. this, it's very straightforward. So I am not an additional insured on your policy because you have given me a COI. How do I get additional insured coverage? I either get a specific endorsement from you or more, much more likely than not, your policy has a provision that says, if you, Dave, have a contractual obligation to give additional insured coverage, in writing, so there's a written agreement that requires that, mm -hmm. then our policy of insurance, your, Dave's policy of insurance, will grant that additional insured endorsement oh. automatically. So we need that written contract that says you, mm -hmm. Dave, will give me, Alex, additional insured coverage for that additional insured to kind of trigger. Um, and what is additional insured coverage? That means now me, I have two avenues of of recovery. I have my own insurance, but I also have your insurance, which is going to cover me like it was my insurance. So if you give me additional insured coverage, I can now say, well, I don't want to make a claim on my policy. I'm just going to make a claim on Dave's policy as if it was my policy because I'm an additional insured on Dave's policy. So it's a, it's a very powerful thing to get but you got to do it right. Now, your insurance agent should be able to help you navigate mm -hmm. all of this. But that's an example of something else you want in your contract with your subcontractor. Right. Because these guys get their insurance canceled all the time. <laughs> so right. you, need, you need to be notified of that because otherwise, you know, if they show you here's here's a just a, a copy of their insurance, you're you're not going to know about it if they get canceled or for non-payment or whatever it is and you do not want to work for uh, you don't want to have a subcontractor that doesn't have insurance yeah, a lot of times they just don't even think about it or check it, yeah. it's crazy here's a quick tip probably one of the best ways to mitigate uh insurance certificate fraud only accept a copy of a certificate of insurance from the broker, not from the subcontractor mm -hmm. himself. So if someone's giving, oh, I need your certificate, here you go, and I hand it to you, you should be suspect. What you want is you want to say, thank you very much, I need to get it from your broker. So have your broker email it to me, then you know it's a real certificate because I could make that certificate at home. This is a, it's a significant problem here in South Florida. People will just 
buy insurance, cancel insurance, but get lots of COIs to, to pass out. Or they just completely fabricate them and hand them out. And if you don't check, then, yep. then you have no insurance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, in, I, I, we want to wrap up, but I got just um, two more things real quick. Is I've got a client that not getting paid, uh, some kind of dispute, and he doesn't have uh, um, liens filed. Doesn't didn't do any of his liens because he's, it was it was a regular customer and so forth. And here again, exactly what we were talking about. And his contract sucks. So he says, well, Dave, I'm just going to sue him. I'm going to go sue him right now, and I'm going to get my money. So we both know that that generally doesn't work. Um, What do we do in that situation? I guess we just start negotiating and do the best we can. But if somebody doesn't want to pay you and you don't have your lien rights, you've got a bad contract or maybe a verbal contract, what do we do? So, um, so the first thing is you should go see a lawyer, right? Because you want to talk to a lawyer so that that lawyer can tell you, um, what rights you do have. Maybe you have more rights than you think you do. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe there's something helpful in the contract. Maybe, um, you have lien rights and you don't know that you did, you know, with the folks at Sunray Construction Solutions, I do a monthly webinar for them for free. And uh, this past month, just earlier this week, the webinar that we gave was titled, uh, oh, shit, I forgot my notice to owner. <laughs> what do I do now? And right. I went through a, a handful of exceptions that exist in Florida's lien law where even if you didn't send a notice to owner, hmm. you would still have lien rights. So you need to start, talk, the first thing you need to do is talk to a seasoned construction attorney because you may have more rights than you think you have. Um, but if and you that, have that's to- Im- That's important right there, what you just said is a seasoned construction attorney, because as you said, this guy that's doing divorce cases and so forth, I mean, construction is- very complicated. Obviously, I talk about this a lot where uh, also your accountant, you want to have someone that understands construction accounting because it is different than regular accounting. And I think the same is, well, I know the same is true for um, legal advice. Yeah. I, our most successful clients have surrounded themselves with uh, trusted advisors in their respective field that focus exclusively on construction. So a construction lawyer, a construction CPA, a construction uh, insurance agent, and a construction bonding agent. Um, Typically, if you have those folks around you, um, they will be able to give you lots of good advice for several reasons. One, they're experts in the field. And two, they usually have their ear to the ground. So they know what's going on in your local market because they have lots of other clients in the same field. Um, So I agree with you 100%. You should definitely have uh, seasoned professionals in the construction industry Mm -hmm. to be your advisors. But if you have to file a lawsuit after you talk to a lawyer, um, you know, there are ways to potentially recover, but having to sue someone is... The worst case scenario, Um, I was on the phone with a prospective client um, the other day, uh, actually it was yesterday, and he said to me, he says, I'm owed $150,000. I said, well, let's talk about that. Um, How did you calculate that? Well, that's, I was terminated improperly from a job Mm -hmm. and that was left to bill on the job. I said, well, legally you're not entitled to $150,000. At most, you're entitled to your potential profit on the work you didn't do. So let's assume just round numbers, your profit is 10%. You had $150,000 left to um, finish. Then your legal entitlement isn't 150000 because that's the revenue. You're entitled to your profit. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. 15000 Right. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, how much do they owe you for the work you've performed? $10,000. So have they offered to settle? 
Yes, they've offered me 20,000. So your best day in court <laughs> is $25,000 right. and they've offered you 20. He said, what do you think I should do? I said, this is not a complicated decision. <laughs> so it's a trick question. <laughs> right. Like maybe you get them to give you 21 or 22, but if all you get is 20 and you don't have to pay me or deal with me, you do that deal every day of the week, twice on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's again, having good advice, good counsel, right. someone that you can trust. I spend most of my time convincing people not to sue other people, exactly. um, not to spend time in court. How do we settle? Um, so, you know, a good lawyer is probably doing that for you. Mm-hmm. I've uh, <clears throat> been involved with my uh, quite a fair amount of litigation over the years. And there's a couple of things that you don't think about is one, if that 150000 is what you're owed and you do want to go you know, duke it and make the mistake of going to going through all the stuff. One, you're going to spend a lot of money yes. to get to that point. The other thing is that the, the, you're out, you know, you don't have that cash flow. And that, you know, having that 150,000 bucks out there for a year plus or whatever is really going to hurt as opposed to taking maybe 75,000, getting the cash in hand. But the thing that really uh, is difficult, the number one issue that you do not want to go get in, involved with this is it sucks the life out of you. Yes. And it just weighs on you everything. You know, it's like wearing these, having these weights, this anchor on you all the time. And that can go for a year. Same is true for divorce. <laughs> Don't get divorced. <laughs> you know, these kind of things, it just... It, it, it takes your attention away from what you should be doing. And you're in most cases just better off, you know, take your haircut and move on and get something, negotiate the best deal that you can. It's may not be right. You know, oh, I'm not going to let them screw me over, you know, don't get involved with that because it just, it can really, really kill you. And it's a huge distraction. Yeah, it's that's I would say that's probably the biggest thing. It's mm-hmm. that it's it's a distraction. Um and sometimes it's unavoidable, by the way. Sometimes right. you may yep. you know, you're owed 150 grand, you're willing to take 75, but their offer is $2,000. Well, mm-hmm. then maybe you don't have a lot of choice. Maybe you're going to have to duke it out for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um but if 100% if given an opportunity yep. to settle a case, I what I constantly tell clients is Tell me what is the absolute worst amount that you could barely stomach. Like you would just be Mm -hmm, so upset with yourself. Like you would just, you'll do it, but you're just going to be unhappy for a week. Uh, Whatever that number is, take off at, reduce it by another 10% (laughs) and you should be willing to settle for that. Just to, just to be done. I, I agree. And there is no such thing as a slam dunk. You know, no. this is this is simple. This is straightforward. And you walk out of there going, I don't understand what the hell just happened, but how could I be screwed like this? Yeah. So I mean, maybe this is a good a good place to to end. Let me let me tell you what I have learned. They don't teach you this in law school. This is uh um observations of being a practicing lawyer. Your case the the cost in legal fees and the time it takes to litigate a case has very, very little to do with the strength of your case and how right you are. It has everything to do with how difficult and unreasonable the other side is and the other side's lawyer is. So you can have a phenomenal case. You can have all of the emails, you can have all the contract documents, but if the other side wants to make it take a really long time and make it cost you a lot of money, they can do that. And they may be wrong at the end of the day, but are you willing to spend 20, 30, 50, $100,000 in legal fees for the next eight, 12, 16 months to be proven right? So the fact that you're having the dispute means you're already dealing with an unreasonable person. Do you really want to engage that person 
in a protracted uh, situation, which, by the way, the courts across the country, South Florida, yes, but everywhere in the country, are generally backed up. Cases that would take 12 months before are taking 18 to 24 months now. Um, Access to judges to get issues resolved. You know, things that we would normally get done in, you know, we could ask for time in front of the judge, you know, two, three, four weeks from now. We're looking at eight, 10, 12 weeks. So just imagine to get anything done, it's taking forever. Just like just like you having a hard time getting construction materials, we're having a hard time getting access to right, a judge right. to make a decision. It's not where you want to be. Trust me. And this well, is what I do for a living. Yeah, exactly. One last quick question, and it's just a one-word answer. Arbitration in the contract, yes or no? The answer is <laughs> yes. The answer, I'm a lawyer. I can't just give you one, well, one yeah, word answer. Exactly. Get paid uh, by the word, right? <laughs> so my answer before the pandemic was litigation. My answer today is arbitration. Mm. Not that I think it's a uh, it's it's inherently better, but currently it's less expensive and much faster. Um, so you know you're giving up things with arbitration, like mm-hmm. there's effectively no right of appeal. There's no obligation for the arbitrator to follow the law. They could issue a ruling that is completely binding on you that is contrary to the law in the state that you're in. Um, That's unlikely to happen, but it's possible. Um, But the problem is that everything I just talked about, the ability to access the judicial system is very challenging right now. And as a result, if you want the resolution of your problem uh, quickly you probably have to arbitrate. I just reviewed a handful of contracts this week. You know, two years ago, I would have checked the box for litigation. All of the contracts, I checked the box for arbitration just so we can get a faster result. Agreed. Well, Alex, this is tremendous information. And I got to tell you, you know, you got a great voice. You should think about doing a podcast. Yeah. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Calculine. The Calculine is a free tool you can get by simply going to calculine.com. That's C-A-L-C-U-L-I-E-N.com, calculine.com. And it's a free tool that allows you to easily calculate the 45 and 90 day deadlines for notice to owners, liens, and bond claims. No more counting on your fingers to figure out when your notice to owner deadline is or when your lien deadline is. Just go to calculine.com, put in your information, and we'll send one to you for free in the mail. You'll get it in a few days.